This is the Education Gadfly Show. How about you, David? Was this an excuse for you to, to uh, cook a turkey for the turkey? I'm in charge of eating the turkey, Mike. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. With the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest, the original Education Gadfly, Checker Finn. Hey, nice to be with you again. <laughs> well, welcome back to the show, Checker. And also joining us as always, David Griffith. Good to be here. Yes, good to have you here. I hope you both had a lovely, if smaller than usual, Thanksgiving. It was very safe. Okay, good. Safe is good. Checker. All went well uh, on my end. Okay, on your end. We hosted for uh, the first time ever. We are used to doing things, usually going to a bigger gatherings. And so we had a very small gathering here. It meant I got to do a turkey for the first time ever. And it was a success. I'm going to congratulate myself about that. I feel like I'm an all grown up. David. Congratulations. Did, yes, thank you. How about you, David? Was this an excuse for you to, to uh, cook a turkey for the first I, time? I'm in charge of eating the turkey, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Really? I haven't met that milestone. Yet. I haven't gotten any better at cooking or at multitasking uh, or keeping track of how long things are in the oven. I'm basically, uh, I'm still just myself. That, that, that all makes sense, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and Checker, does your Indian family, have they come to love turkey and stuffing and mashed potatoes? Well, I've been cooking for years now, but if I cook anything different, I get complaints. Well, that's true. You, you do hear these stories of people trying to do some kind of uh, alternative to the traditional Thanksgiving dinner and not telling people in advance and making people very angry. So yeah, we shouldn't do that. But here at the Education Gadfly Show, we like to give people what they expect. And what they expect is a big dollop of Ed Reform updates. Checker, let's talk about your, one of your many, many of your latest articles. I will say, Checker, you've been incredibly productive lately. Wall Street Journal op-ed, Washington Post. That's because you don't let me travel during the pandemic. Exactly. And, uh, and now we are going to talk about a, a feature article you did for Education Next, focusing on your good friend, Lamar Alexander. So let's talk about it. Checker, Lamar Alexander, uh, Senator Lamar Alexander, uh, is stepping down at the end of this Senate term finally retiring. Uh, you wrote a great profile about him for Education Next that covered his career. He has done so many things in education. Give us a little bit of taste. What, what are some of the roles that he has played over the last 30 or 40 years? Oh my. Lamar has, among other things, been a governor of Tennessee and a major education reform leader in that regard. He's been a, a, a reformer of the National Assessment of Educational Progress. He's been a leader of other governors on education reform. He's been president of a university, the University of Tennessee. He's been U.S. Secretary of Education. And for the last um, 18 years, he's been the senator from Tennessee, including four years now as chairman of the Senate Education Committee, also known as the HELP Committee. So he is, for um, the better part of 50 years, I think, had as much or more influence on American education as anybody alive today. So let's dig into some of that. I mean, first of all, way back when, in the 1980s, uh, he was one of those leading education governors, right, in Tennessee. When you remember those days, and you were, you were there with him in Tennessee for part of that time, um, you know, for folks who have come along since then, what were some of the things that, that really stands out? What was so special about him as a governor pushing on education reform? 
there were a whole bunch of governors, many of them in the South in the early 80s, that, were, uh, that had figured out that in order to do something about the long-lasting poverty of their states and their people, they needed to beef up their education systems. This included Republicans and Democrats. Um, Bill Clinton, for example, in, in nearby Arkansas, another example of this. Um, and what Lamar did was figure out that in order to boost the, the income of Tennesseans, they needed to do something about their schools. So at the end of the end of his first term, he proposed to the legislature what became a big bipartisan measure called the Basic Skills Program. And then in his second term, after he got reelected, um, the Better Schools Program that he proposed had a lot of moving parts, of which by far the most controversial was a pioneering career ladder, or you could say a merit pay system for teachers. And he spent several years getting it enacted by a bipartisan legislature in Tennessee, and he uh, infected the National Governors Association with education reform at the same time, during which time a nation at risk was also emerging. Uh, Lamar had made his mark on Tennessee education, um, and then he reached out uh, nationally, really, partly through the NGA, partly through the Southern Regional Education Board, partly through the big commission on, on NAEP that uh, he chaired in the, in the mid-80s that led to a major overhaul of the national assessment. And so, you know, this now should probably sound familiar to some people. We saw, of course, later uh, in the 90s, we had Governor George W. Bush from Texas, who was a big education reformer. And when he went to Washington, of course, as president, he brought a lot of those reforms with him. Lamar Alexander went to Washington as education secretary, but uh, his impulse wasn't exactly the same, right? Uh, he wasn't a guy who said, okay, now let's do at the national level what I just did at the state level. Lamar is very sensitive to the, the dangers of what he calls a national school board, and he doesn't want the federal government uh, uh, telling people how to run their schools or telling uh, states what to do. So what he did for George H.W. Bush, uh, number 41, uh, starting in 1990, 1991, was to take the brand new national education goals that had been set in Charlottesville in 89 and uh, propose what he called a national strategy for pushing the country toward its national goals. This was called America 2000, and it was different from NCLB. It was not a big federal program so much as it was a kind of federal encouragement um, of education change to take place. And a number of things went on in the private sector as well. So he's been very leery of excessive, overweening federal engagement with uh, the nation's schools. So, Checker, let me push a little bit. Um, I mean, of course, I'm a huge fan of, of Senator Alexander's as well. Uh, but some people have said, look, you know, here's a guy who came in and was behind the Every Student Succeeds Act, which really, in many ways, undid No Child Left Behind. He's somebody whose Tennessee reforms, while impressive at the time, a little hard to go back and point to big improvements in student achievement. I guess the question would be, you know, is it fair to criticize Senator Alexander for not having a track record in terms of outcomes? Can you point to outcomes that uh, that improved on his watch, even either in Tennessee or nationally? Is is that a fair criticism? Well, I think it's fair to say Tennessee embarked during <clears throat> during Lamar's time on on what's been a thirty, maybe forty year now sequence of education reforms that have shown some payoff uh, in the state, but over the very long haul. I don't think we can take a single individual's reforms and judge the effect of them by the outcomes they produced because there's so many moving parts in education. It is the fact that um, even Lamar will concede that he isn't very satisfied with the current state of American education, uh, but he does believe that authority is now vested where it belongs, in states and communities and parents. And he thinks more of it should be vested in parents, incidentally. He's become a major fan of school choice over the years, charters and vouchers and what he calls the GI Bill for Kids and so forth. 
I don't think it's uh, legitimate to take any given public official, whether it's Teddy Kennedy or George Bush or Lamar Alexander, and judge their impact by the scores that students get X years later. All right. I can hear educators out there just right now saying, see, see, now you don't want to hold people accountable. Hey, David, what do you have for us? Uh, especially since you haven't, well, you haven't been around quite as long as certainly Checker or myself. Yeah, I'm a young pup, but I'm old enough to uh, remember the passage of ESSA. And I remember being favorably impressed by both uh, Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray. And I guess I would point out one, you know, Patty Murray still endures. So one half of the bipartisan team uh, that got that done is still thriving. But I think uh, it's fair to say that times have changed and um, there's going to be a hole where sort of Lamar Alexander or someone like him should be. And it's not entirely clear to me who is going to fill it. So, you know, looking forward, it's... Uh, I, it would be foolish to predict <laughs> even the next month, much less the next 10 years. But my hope is just that education can continue to be an issue where the parties find a way to, or, or it can return to being an issue where the parties find a way to set aside their differences, rather like people used to talk about with foreign policy and acknowledge that it's about the kids. You know, I'm hopeful that whoever fills Lamar's place um, can sort of aspire to that and you know, that we can sort of continue to, to get things done and move the ball forward. I agree it's yeah. absurd to judge anyone's legacy based on test scores. Education is complicated, and we have to judge in terms of years and decades. All right. Well, fair enough. Well, Checker, people have said that Senator Alexander feels like he's from a, a bygone age of, you know, working in a bipartisan way, trying to get things done instead of just trying to get on television, which... <laughs> feels like a lot of senators do today. Do you have any hope that we're going to get back to that day of, of actually passing bills and getting the levers of government to work? I think it's important to note, as you just did and as David did, that uh, one of the hallmarks of uh, Lamar's way of working, both uh, in Tennessee and in the Senate, has been to try to get uh, something durable, which means for him something bipartisan uh, enacted, something that has reasonable stability um, as a policy, regardless of who wins the next election. So this has been very important to him, and it's one of the reasons he stepped down from Senate leadership uh, not so many years ago to become a, a committee chairman, really, because he had to get stuff done in that way. As for the future, it's anybody's guess whether uh, either our state legislatures or our Congress are going to see a return to bipartisanship. I fervently hope so, but uh, this may end up being up to Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, and, uh, and either uh, Chuck Schumer or um, Mitch McConnell. Uh, I don't know. You don't often say that you don't know, but I appreciate the honesty there. We don't know what the future holds. Well, and boy, if I don't well, know, I have to say it. That's right. And, and especially given that, uh, you know, one possibility is that Lamar Alexander will be replaced by Senator Rand Paul on the HELP Committee, the Education Committee, which would certainly be a shift in a new direction. That's all the time we've got for now. I uh, really appreciate you coming on the show, Checker. As always, again, Chester Finn Jr. of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Thanks, Checker. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Adam Tyner, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you all. Adam filling in for Amber today, and we so appreciate it. I hope all is well with you. You know, Adam's been working from Mexico City. Did you celebrate Thanksgiving nonetheless? Turkey and everything. Is that right? Yep. Wow. Nice. Is, was it hard to find a turkey in, in Mexico? Not at all. Yeah. Look at so that. At least not be died, Adam. <laughs> 
Wrong well, holiday, well played. Yeah. Well played, David. All right, Adam, what you got for us on the research front today? Well, this week we're going to be talking about what student factors lead to student learning. Specifically, whether academic efficiency, remember that term, or willingness to spend more time studying is more important to learning. This NBER working paper comes from a multinational group of university-based economists, including Christopher Cotton of Ontario's Queen's University and Chicago's John List. And it uses data from an experiment to see how much middle school students are willing to work more to get incentives for completing homework modules. I'm probably going to go a little over a minute here because I'm going to first talk about their really fascinating experimental data and design, then talk about some of their findings. And then since student motivation is one of my personal obsessions, I want to mention just a couple of potential problems I see with the author's interpretations, and then we can discuss it further. So let's dig in. The researchers set up a website for taking math quizzes for fifth and sixth grade students in three districts in Illinois across the socioeconomic across the socioeconomic spectrum. The website had 80 short math quizzes that the students could complete, and the students received cash incentives for each quiz completed. And they could take each quiz as many times as they wanted. The students had access to the website for 10 days, and crucially, the incentives for completing the quizzes were randomized across students. That means that for some students, they got more money, and others, they got less. That enables the researchers then to estimate the effect of the incentives for different groups. For example, boys versus girls. For example, if boys respond more to the incentives than girls, and that was true, that shows that they have a greater preference for their leisure time over studying more. The key here is that they're trying to disentangle two concepts that we often conflate, and those are motivation and what they call academic efficiency. As an example, normally we hear that students who don't turn in their homework are lacking motivation, and of course that might be true, but the authors point out that if you have two students with equal motivation, but one of them can get their homework done in, say, 20 minutes, but the other can't because the second student has less academic efficiency or ability, the first student may be turning in the homework because the homework can be completed in a reasonable amount of time, while the other student spends the same amount of time but doesn't really get anywhere. So we're often conflating motivation with ability. What the experiment allows them to do is to disentangle these to some extent since they can estimate academic efficiency based on how much time it takes students to successfully complete the quizzes and then they can estimate time preference or motivation based on how groups of students respond to the randomly assigned incentives. Okay, so that's the experiment. Now to the results, which there's a ton of, so I'm just going to focus on the ones I think are most interesting. Other people can go find the paper at the NBER site and check it out for themselves. First, as we would expect, students with greater incentives did more math quizzes. The students in the highest incentive group, they got $1.25 per quiz completed. Among those who did at least one quiz, they did an average of 26 of the 80 quizzes. Whereas those in the lowest incentive group who only got 75 cents per quiz did just 18 of the 80 over the study period on average. Those students in the high incentive group also spent, on average, about a minute more per quiz since they had reason to keep trying. But there was huge variation across students. Half of the students never completed a single quiz, and 4% of the students completed all 80 quizzes. Of the students who completed at least one quiz, and that's who we'll be talking about the rest of the way because they end up having to throw out most of those other students, 
there was dramatic variation in how much money it took to get them to work. So when considering you know, you, the incentives on an hourly basis, you can kind of calculate because they're responding to the incentives differently. At the 25th percentile of time preference, the students who had the least time preference or the least preference for their own leisure time, a student needed just $8 to forego three hours of leisure time. At the 75th percentile of that, a student needed $56 to forgo three hours of leisure time. So there's just a huge variation in time preference, how much students were willing to uh, focus on, on the academics over their leisure time. So then using estimates derived from the effects of the incentives, they find that female students are more motivated and that is they have less of a preference for leisure time. And they also find that black students are also slightly more motivated than white students. This leads the authors to the conclusion that, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, but they say, and I quote, educational interventions that aim to decrease gender or racial performance gaps in math by motivating students through incentives or information about the returns to education may be misguided. They say that's because black students are already at least as motivated, according to their experiment. And also, and this is crucial, because they find that academic efficiency has much more powerful effect on the amount of quizzes that students take than students' time preference does. They also then spend some time looking at across the districts, and they try to isolate the effect of the district on the students by seeing how students across those districts, which are one of which is wealthy, one's working class, one's poor, uh, how they vary in academic efficiency after controlling for all the student observable characteristics. So it's kind of a value-added thing. And the difference is substantial. It's about three-fourths of a standard devi deviation but, um, but from the, the wealthy district to the poor district. And so they're saying that you know, it really matters what quality of school you're going to. That's, that's their argument. So the key implication, and I'll wrap with this, uh, is that incentives are going to be costly and that changing academic efficiency is the kind of low-hanging fruit since academic efficiency is the main driver. I guess the problem I see with that is that what you're saying is that the key to improving education is getting students to learn faster. And it's kind of like, well, why didn't I think of that? Yeah, academic efficiency encompasses so much. It's innate ability, it's previous level, it's teacher quality, parent involvement, student studying. And I think that it's unlikely that when you put all that together, it really is the low-hanging fruit. Wow. I, I got to say, Adam, you, you did go a little bit long, but I... I had my own time preference was to let you continue going because that was really fascinating and well done. Uh, I agree. What do you think, David? I am skeptical that you're in fact a father because that was incredibly clear-minded and uh, focused and you cannot <laughs> possibly have done that on uh, a newborn sleep schedule. So congratulations on whatever cheat code you've discovered. Okay. Yeah, no, It's really interesting. I, I think you're right, Adam, that how, how can improving academic efficiency be low-hanging fruit? I don't know, maybe from an economist perspective, but... I think that they think the incentives are... The point of the incentives is to increase motivation and to increase how much the students work. And for at least the black-white achievement gap, they're finding that the black students are already like putting in as much work. They're willing to work on it. It's the academic efficiency side that is holding them back. And so if they're already working as much, then those incentives maybe aren't going to even the playing field the way that people think they would.
You know, I also am interested in this notion of motivation. It could be motivation, but it could be other things too, right? That, uh, I don't know, conscientiousness, you know, other personality traits that, you know, I think about the stereotype, but there might be some truth to it that, that girls seem to be more willing to do the work and do it right, you know, versus boys that might want to just rush through and do as minimum as little as possible. Maybe I've noticed this in my own uh, personal experience here. There, you just, like, this is a soft bigotry of low expectations. Mike. I know, I know. Well, that's exactly what they find, Mike, is that girl. I mean, that's the biggest gap you see is that girls are working so much harder. They don't need the incentive to have to spend all this extra time trying to get through these modules. Right. And, and so, yes, I think that's right that they are motivated. But I think that is almost too, that to me, that just feels a little shallow. Like, like maybe that doesn't encompass everything that that is driving that difference. Mike, you know, what a researcher would say is that motivation is endogenous, right? In other words, yeah. motivation isn't some given. It's something that that comes that is developed, right? By, based on culture, based on the expectations for boys, based on the environment. It's not like it just falls from the sky. Sorry, I cut you off. No, that 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 that's right. So that no, but and and that's fair. And then of course the notion of uh, that maybe different kinds of motive, different kinds of incentives might have had a different impact here, right? I mean, there's we're, we're using money, which you know is is reasonable, but you could imagine, you know, does recognition, public recognition, does you know, even if it's not public, just you know, some some kids are going to work really hard for an A. Again, for a lot of intrinsic personality, cultural, social reasons, that's important to some kids and other kids, it's not important to them at all, right? I think some people would expect that you might see a a gap there, uh, like a racial gap, at least a black-white racial gap, which they don't find. I mean, they find that the that that urge, you know, that at least the time preference way of of seeing the motivation is just mm-hmm. there. There isn't a gap there, and that's it. Does raise some interesting questions about how do, you know how much would the incentives have to be? Because there's other research out there that shows that you know I, I've talked before about the NIMSI program where the National Math and Science Initiative has this program where they pay students, these are a little older students or high school students, to, to, to complete AP courses and, and get a good grade on the AP exam. And then they also have an incentive structure for the teachers to help them, them do it too. And it has these like huge effects on the student participation. It has these like Hispanic students who are exposed to the program have like more than 10% higher earnings several years later. And so um, it's not clear, like those are big incentives in the NIMSI program. They give them hundreds of dollars per AP exam. Um, it's not clear like how, how that should best be allocated and how best to, to really, you know, leverage incentives to get students to work harder. Yeah, I agree with all that. I mean, I, but I think in some ways, everything that people have been saying is true, right? But I, I actually think it's a really good study and I think it's really interesting and I buy it. It's just the fundamental notion, right, which is that, you know, when Johnny comes in and he hasn't, you know, he's only done half of his homework, right, it's not necessarily that Johnny's lazy. Like, right, right. I, that, that, I mean, as someone who recently taught, like, that tracks for me, right? Some kids are just struggling, right? And when you're struggling, of course, A, you're not going to stay up until 4 a.m. to get the same grade that, you know, the kid who just has it breezes through it is also you're not going to have fun doing in school right i mean academic efficiency is bloodless way of putting it but like of course school isn't fun if it's exhausting and you constantly feel confused so i mean i actually think this fundamental distinction between motivation and 
efficiency is a good word for it. I don't want to say ability because that it, there's too many things baked into it to say that. Um, but I think it that is worth all, everyone reflecting on because, yeah, I agree. It's not low-hanging fruit. It does point towards some things and away from others, right? It, mm-hmm. And, and it, it points away from lecturing kids and towards diagnosing the problem, yep. um, whatever yep. it is. Yep. And I mean, I think we all know that intuitively, but it's so easy to sort of lose sight of it. And it's easier to say than, than to do. But anyway, I just, I think, I think it's a brilliant study, yeah. honestly. And I, I want to clarify that they don't call it. academic efficiency ability. That's, I kind of substituted that in a couple of times. They talk about academic efficiency mostly. They use innate ability as like one of a list of things, but they talk about it as mostly something that, you know, would differ by school or teacher quality, stuff like that, because that's how that, I guess that's the levers they think are going to be easier for us to turn. But but uh, it's all of those things is what you know produces that academic efficiency, presumably. Yeah. So yeah, no, it's a great great takeaway. If if your kid's not doing their homework, don't give them a lecture. Get them a tutor instead. And then if they're still not working, couch, right, Mike? Then then give them a lecture and take away their screen. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> all right, guys. Hey, great stuff, Adam. Appreciate you pinch hitting and with such a great uh, interesting study. Yeah, my pleasure. Hope, hope you'll be back soon. But that is all the time we've got. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.